0: Well, it is New Year's Day, and when the New Year rolls around, we often think about New Year's resolutions, and that can be good and it can be bad, and, and I thought, given the fact that we've got the kids in here today and we're thinking about New Year's resolutions, what, what better way to start out than with a Calvin and Hobbes cartoon or two? Well, he says, it's a new year and I'd say the first 10 hours haven't been up to snuff. Hobbes says, did you make any New Year's resolutions? You bet. I resolved to quit hiding my feelings so much. From now on, the world's gonna know exactly what I think of it. Hobbes says, yes, you've certainly been the model of self-restraint and understatement until now. Well, no more. And then he thinks about it. And I've also resolved not to put up with sarcastic tigers. If I see any, I'll tell them, Hobbes says. Or this is really my favorite. Did you make any New Year's resolutions? Resolutions? Me? Just what are you implying? That I need to change? Well, buddy, as far as I'm concerned, I'm perfect the way I am. All right. I was going to say, some of you can relate, right? Right. Some of you think, I am perfect the way that I am, but that's not really true. And there is value for all of us at the first of the year or any time to step back and look at our lives and take stock of what's happening and maybe think about developing some new habits or new disciplines. And what better place to find a resolution to make than in the Scriptures? What better way to decide this is something I'm going to do than to pick something that God has said he wants us to do and therefore we can rely on his power to help us do it. And so as we think about a resolution worth keeping, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the passage we just read together from the screen, Philippians chapter 1, beginning at verse 27. In your Bibles, your electronic devices, whatever it is you've got with you, These are the verses that we're going to look at in this book. Now, you need to understand, we're jumping into the end of the chapter. The early parts of Philippians, the early parts of chapter 1, Paul writes very autobiographically. He talks to them about how thankful he is for them. He talks to them about what he's praying for for them. He talks about his view of them, his imprisonment, and the fact that he hopes to be released and to come to them. And now, in verse 27, he turns to instructing them. And after 26 verses, he gets to the first command in the book, the first of many commands in the book. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's a command. That is also, I would suggest to you, a resolution worth keeping in this brand new year. He says, only, and the word simply means this is one thing that is worth doing. Focus on this. Continually live your life in a way that has gospel weight, that's worthy of the gospel. Show the gospel that it is real and is true as others watch you. And it's interesting, the the word or phrase, manner of life, is actually one word, and the root of that word is politics. And it means to be a citizen of a city or citizen of a kingdom. And Paul is saying to them, I know you Philippians are very proud of being Roman citizens. They were. They were a unique city, a Roman colony planted in their area. They were proud of their citizenship. And Paul's not saying that's a bad thing. There were times when he used his Roman citizenship. But he wants them to understand there is a higher calling. We just sang about it. There's a higher kingdom. So allow your life as citizens to be worthy of the gospel of Christ. A little later in Philippians 3, he'll remind us our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Our ultimate loyalty must be kingdom loyalty. Our ultimate loyalty must be to our king who is coming someday for us. And so we allow our lives to be witnesses, to be examples of what the gospel is like. And that's a resolution that's worth keeping in this brand new year of 2023. But what does it mean? What does it mean to live in such a way that our, our lives have gospel weight? Well, Paul is going to explain that as he moves down through. Now, he could have said, show it by your love, show it by your joy, by your peace, by your hope. Those are all things he does talk about in other places, but those aren't the behaviors he focuses in on here. And so as he talks about keep this resolution of allowing your life to be lived in a manner that's worthy of the gospel, he draws our attention to what he wants us to do. Look again at verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul says here's what we need to do. We need to nurture essential unity with other believers. We need to work at that connection with other followers of Jesus Christ, especially he's talking to that local church as I'm talking to this local church And so the resolution might be something like this. I will work hard to be in right connection with fellow followers of Jesus. I'm going to make it a goal in 2023 to live my life worthy of the gospel by making sure that I'm in connection with other followers of Jesus Christ. At the very outset, Paul hits the idea of unity really hard. One spirit, he says, and he's not talking about the Holy Spirit, though the Holy Spirit is certainly the one who engenders this. He's saying, I want you to have one attitude, one heart, so that together you are striving for one thing. And then he says, I want you to have one mind, and he's not talking about uniformity that we all think exactly alike, he's talking about unity that our mindset is the same. What's that mindset? That I am trying to, to work and live in such a way that my life demonstrates the truth of the gospel. He talks about striving side by side. It's really interesting. Paul loves in Philippians a little three-letter Greek prefix. S-U-N, which we would say is sun. In Greek, it's soon. And he likes to connect that to other verbs, so that the idea of soon is with. So he'll say with and then a verb, so you're doing this with somebody. And the striving side by side, the verb here is athluntis, You can hear in that athletics. Some of us yesterday and over this weekend will probably watch way too much football, Right? But as you watch a really good team, you'll notice that those players move in synchronization. They they do their jobs, each of their individual jobs well. Or if you're not into sports and you're into ballet, and we just came through the Nutcracker season, if you watch the Nutcracker, I'm always amazed the, the ballerinas, the other people on stage, I mean, they're twirling, they're moving, and they're not bumping into each other. I'd be tripping all over everybody if I were doing that. The other night, Peggy and I watched one of the old versions of A Christmas Carol with Alistair Sim. And in that, there were six or seven couples and they're ballroom dancing in this tiny room. And I'm watching them thinking, how are they doing that without running into each other? They're synchronized, they're working together. And that's Paul's point. He says, you're striving side by side so that you're each carrying out your role. And I want you to strive, realizing you're on the same team, to work, to accomplish the same goal. And he says, I want to hear about that so that if I get released from prison and I get to come to you, I observe it. If I don't get released, I hear reports of how you are living, connected, serving with one another Unity is a theme he's going to return to in this book over and over. In fact, just a couple of verses later for chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and the idea is there is all of that, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. And then in chapter 4, he's going to point out one of the reasons he makes this such an emphasis, because there was a problem in the church. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. There were two ladies Warren Wiersbe calls them odious and soon touchy that they, they couldn't get along with each other. And he says, you need to work at being united, being in harmony with one another so that you can stand firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side. Standing firm is a military term now, not an athletic term, so we put up a united front against the enemy, against the opposition, which you will talk about in a couple of minutes. The Christian life was never intended to be me and Jesus, and that's it. It was intended to be me connected to all of you and all of us together connected with Jesus so that we serve and strive side by side to minister to a world that desperately needs to see a group of people who can get along with each other and can work with each other, even with all their differences. In 2023, we need to nurture essential unity with other believers. I mean, who knows what's gonna come in this new year that Satan will try to use to divide us, A few years ago, who would have imagined there would be a global pandemic that would cause us to move into different camps and divide even within the body of Christ over things? And then there's politics. I mean, politics is always good for dividing people. If you don't believe me, just get on Facebook or other social media and notice how people go after each other. Who knows what will happen in 2023? Maybe it'll just be preferences. Styles of music in worship, styles of dress in worship, styles of ministry that we do. And you say, well, I don't like that. Well, they do, and let's let's divide into two camps or three or four over it. In 2023, we may be looking at, at some point, a pastoral transition. That's a great opportunity, great in quotations, for Satan to get in and work in a church and try to divide it. And so we need to be on guard, and we need to nurture the unity that we have at Berean. Thank God, but we need to nurture it and continue to work at it. If unity were easy, Paul wouldn't have to urge it throughout the book. If unity were easy, he wouldn't have to use words like striving side by side and some other words that we'll see as we move on down through this. The late Colin Powell, when he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, said, when a team takes the field, the individual specialists come together to achieve a team win. All players try to do their very best because every other player, the team, and the hometown are counting on them to win. So it is when the armed forces of the United States go to war. We must win every time. They must all believe that they are part of a team, a joint team that fights together to win. This is our history, this is our tradition, this is our future. He's saying we need in the armed forces, and if that's true there, how much more in the church, we need to work at unity so that we're all carrying out the roles that God has assigned to us. And so to do that, we've got to gather together. Some of you are watching online today, and it's a holiday weekend, and I get that, or you're not feeling well Last Sunday, a lot of you were watching online because the weather was lousy, and that's a great opportunity, but it never can replace what we're doing right now in this room of being in one place and connecting with each other and rubbing shoulders with each other and maybe rubbing each other the wrong way sometimes so that we learn to be patient and we learn to forgive and we learn to give forgiveness as we nurture essential unity And if you really want to get to know people, you want to connect with people, get involved. Serve. You will never connect with people better than when you are serving side by side in a ministry. And so if you're able to do that, I encourage you to make that part of your goals in this new year is to get involved and learn who some other great folks are at Berean. Nurture essential unity with other believers. Paul says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for a reason, for the faith of the gospel. So it's not just unity for unity's sake, it is unity for the sake of the gospel. And so he says, if you're going to flesh out what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel, with gospel weight, We need to defend gospel priority as we move through life. The gospel needs to be important. It needs to be one of the most important things, a priority for us. So the resolution might be something like this. I will stand firmly for the truth of the gospel by what I say and what I do. Paul's point here is that the gospel is worth competing for Striving side by side together, that is our crucial work. And in a moment, we'll talk about the opposition because striving and standing firmly and all of that implies there's opposition involved. But Paul's point right now is that the gospel is of paramount importance. A few verses earlier in chapter 1, he talks about that in his own life. Verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. He's saying, My time in jail, the suffering that I'm going through, pales by comparison with the fact that the gospel's spreading. And that's far more important than what's happening to me. He goes on in verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice Others' treatment of me, Paul says, pales by comparison with the fact that the gospel is spreading, because that's what's more important. Paul has made this resolution true in his life, that he will defend gospel priority as he moves through his life. And he urges us to strive side by side, to work together like a good athletic or ballet team for the faith of the gospel. And so we need to ask ourselves is the gospel important in my life? Is it important enough in my life that I spend time reading to see what God has to say to me? It's a new year. It is a good time to say, you know what? I am going to spend time in the Word of God every day. And I've put on your outline in the bulletin and thrown a few things on the screen. If you say, I don't know where to start, I don't know what to do, here are some good things that you can look at. The Bible recaps, not one that I've personally used, becomes highly recommended by people I respect, which is a a passage that you can read and then you can listen to a podcast, brief one about it. And you can pick it up as an app, or you can pick it up in book form. Ligonier's webpage, which is on your bulletin, has, I don't know, 8, 10 maybe Bible reading programs, all kinds of programs that you can download and you can use to get started. If you haven't started today, you're just one day behind. Jump in. You can catch up. YouVersion is a Bible app that has all kinds of ways to keep you in the Word of God on a daily basis. And if you're like me and you'd rather hold a book in your hand, uh, D.A. Carson's For the Love of God. He actually has two volumes, so you can do it for two years, of reading through the Bible and some meditations that he gives. Or What I've decided to do this year, among other Bible reading, is uh, Tim Keller's book on the Psalms where he just takes a psalm or a part of a psalm every day. Now, I usually read one psalm a day, but I'm going to break it down a little more slowly this year. And he just gives you some thoughts on that psalm and then a prayer about it. It's a great opportunity to even take the words of that part of the psalm and use them as part of your prayer to God. We are so blessed as people. We have all kinds of ways that we can get into this book. And if you're have never done it. You're thinking, I I think I want to start. I mean, out there on the counter, we have some of our daily bread, which is a good beginning point. And I've encouraged you before, don't say, I'm going to read the Bible an hour every day if you've never started, because you'll start and you'll make it a week or less and you'll quit. Start small, build up over time. But if we are going to defend gospel priority, that means it has priority in our lives So we're going to spend time reading it and thinking about what God has to say to us. If we're going to defend gospel priority, then we need to value it enough to defend it. There are a lot of people turning away from truth today, turning away from the faith today. You drive around town and you'll see signs in front of churches, that at first look pretty good. They say, everybody welcome here, and everybody is welcome at Berean Baptist Church. But you look at what they're talking about, and what they're really saying is, you can come here with no demands, no change. You don't have to repent. You can just come and and be whoever you are, and that's just fine. And that's not the gospel. The gospel says everybody's welcome, but Jesus wants to transform your life and to change you from who you are into who he wants you to be. We need to make sure that we're standing for the truth of the gospel. Is the gospel important enough in my life, in your life, that we share it? You know, I need to do a better job of that in 2023 than I've done in 2022. Praying for, looking for, taking advantage of opportunities to share with people what Jesus Christ has done for me and what he means for me. Defend gospel priority as we move through life. Which leads us really into the third behavior that Paul says is part of giving our lives gospel weight. He says we need to exhibit convictional courage in the face of opposition. We need to understand that opposition is going to come. And we need to be courageous in standing for what we know is right. So the resolution might be something like this. I will be steadfast in my faith, even if it means I encounter antagonism. What's interesting to me is that Paul spends one verse talking about these first two behaviors And then he spends three verses, verse 28, 29, and 30, talking about this behavior, talking about convictional courage. And so he writes in running start from verse 27 on into verse 28, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul knows in our standing we're going to be opposed. And he says we need to learn not to be frightened by opposition. The the word frightened there is a word that's typically used of a startled horse that shies away or runs. When I was in college, I did an internship in Wisconsin. And while I was there, one of the families there had horses, and they learned that I enjoyed riding. And so they invited me to come and ride one day with them. And so I, they gave me a horse, and I'm on this horse. But what they forgot to tell me was that this horse didn't like any horse passing him. And so we're just riding along, very you know, kind of side by side. And then one of the daughters in the family passed my horse, and his ears went back, and he took off like he was shot out of a gun. And I don't usually get too uh, uptight on a horse, but I want to tell you, I was pulling back on the reins, and he was not stopping. Now, he eventually did. I got him under control again. But that's the picture in my mind when I read this, not startled, not, not running off, not scared by opposition. Because opposition can be scary. It can be frightening to us to realize, as we do That we live in a culture that is no longer in favor of biblical values. And if we're not careful, we will allow that to frighten and intimidate us. The Philippian believers were mostly Gentiles, they were living in a hostile environment. And Paul is saying, You need to stand firm. And part of that standing firm goes back to what he's already talked about. You're not standing firm by yourself, unlike the picture that I have on the screen. You're standing firm because you are striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And so because you're standing firm side by side, you are not frightened. You have courage. And that courage, Paul says, is a clear sign. And now he shifts Realms, again, he's had an athletic term, he's had a military term, now he has a legal term. This is really, he says, your being bold in the face of opposition is evidence. It is evidence to them of their destruction. Interesting. When we are bold, when we are courageous, that is evidence, he says, to those who oppose us that God is real. Real. Because that's how we can stand firm. It's not who I am or who you are. It's his power through us. And so we stand firm in the face of opposition, and our opponents can look at that and say, "Uh uh-oh, we're in trouble. Maybe God really is real. In the early days of Christianity, the Christians were being persecuted, and one particular Christian was being persecuted by a man who was scoffing at him. And the man looked at him and said to him, so what is your carpenter doing now? And the Christian looked at him and said, he's making a coffin for your emperor. That's boldness. That's courage. That's saying, guess what? You're not going to win. It's evidence that God is real, but it's also evidence, he says, of our salvation. When we suffer and stand firm in that suffering, it is an example, it's a piece of evidence that our faith in God is real, it's evidence for us. Because we are suffering with him and as part of his people, as part of his body. And Paul says, all this is from God. Normally we would take that phrase, our salvation is from God, but he's the whole phrase. Their destruction and our salvation, God's in control of all of that. In fact, in verse 29, he builds on that and says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him. Now, we like that part. It has been granted to you literally means this is a gracious gift that God's given to you. He's given faith that you would believe in him. I like that. I don't so much like the second part that he says has been given. That you should not only believe in him but also suffer for his sake. Oh. I don't know about you. I I don't really like suffering. I don't like opposition. I don't look forward to having to make hard choices when persecution comes. But Paul says it's granted to us as a gracious gift by God. You might say, yeah, where's the gift exchange line, right? Where do I go to take this one back? We don't get to. The early church had that perspective that suffering was given by God for them. Acts 5, and when they had called the apostles in, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. When they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Christ. Paul is not saying that God is the cause of the opposition, but that God can turn opposition into blessing, that we can trust him in the midst of it. And that when we endure suffering it shows our genuine faith. He'll talk about that in Philippians 3, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means I might attain the resurrection from the dead. He says, I want to know fellowship with his suffering. But notice that Paul says in verse 29, we're suffering for his sake, for the sake of Christ. And that's important. If I were to go on Tuesday when the government office is open again and I were to shove the guards, the state troopers aside, and boldly push my way into Governor Whitmer's office and get in her face and say, Governor Whitmer, unless you repent, you're going to hell. And about that time, the state troopers tackle me and they handcuff me. I'm not suffering persecution for his sake. I'm suffering persecution because of stupidity. I mean, in this climate, to burst in like that and to do it without tact... That's not suffering for the gospel. We need to be winsome. We need to be gracious and kind in approaching people with the gospel, but we need to stand firm and know that when suffering comes, we can trust Christ to bring good out of it. We need the perspective that suffering can be a gift from God in our lives, and we need the perspective that suffering is not unusual that suffering is something that happens to the people of God. And so Paul says, you are engaged in the same conflict. Back to the athletic realm again. This is the word, the Greek word is agon. You hear agony in there. It's actually a wrestling term. Some of you who are wrestlers know what the agony of wrestling can be like. Paul's saying, we're in a struggle And you, Philippians, and by extension, you, members of Berea, and you watching online, you are in the same struggle for the sake of the gospel that I was in, that I am in. And he says, the same conflict that you saw I had. He's thinking back to Philippi. They had witnessed the suffering of Paul in Philippi. Acts 16 tells us the story. Paul and Silas are arrested. They're dragged before the authorities. The authorities, without a trial, tear their robes off them, and they're beaten with rods. And then they're taken and thrown into prison, and the jailer puts their feet in stocks. Paul says, that's part of the struggle. And you saw it in Philippi. And you now hear that it's still going on because Paul is suffering now in Rome. But he says, you're part of the same conflict. And in spite of the conflict, look back at verse 12, the gospel is advancing both then and now. And so we need to exhibit convictional courage in the face of opposition in this new year. Because folks, without a revival in our culture, our culture is going to become more and more hostile to truth, to Christianity to any kind of morality. Because if our culture's view is, and it is, I am the basis of truth. Anytime you and I make absolute truth claims, we're gonna be considered intolerant. We're gonna be considered to be hateful. We're going to be considered to be oppressive. And yet, we have to exhibit convictional courage. Most of us don't know real persecution, not yet. Maybe you've experienced some ostracization as a socially or something, but we haven't known what it's really like to suffer yet, but it may be coming. Maybe you heard earlier this year about a member of the parliament in Finland and another pastor, evangelical pastor in Finland, who were put on trial because they had shared what the Bible teaches about homosexuality. They were charged with hate speech. And the trial is really a climax of three years of investigation and harassment. Thankfully, the court threw the charges out, but the prosecutor general of Finland announced last May that she's, she's going to appeal. And that appeal will be heard later this summer. Or maybe you heard about the doctor in England who lost his position because the Employment Tribunal judged him because he was no, not willing to use transgender pronouns. They said his views were incompatible with human dignity and that his beliefs were, quote, not worthy of respect in a democratic society. And it's coming here. If you don't believe it, talk to some of our folks in education or some of our folks in the medical field, what they're seeing and what they're hearing and the pressure they're being put under. I would disagree with a lot of his theology, but the late uh, Roman Catholic Cardinal Francis George said this, and I think it's a good warning for us. He said, it's likely that I will die in my bed. My successor will die in prison. His successor will die executed in the public square. All he's saying is it's coming and we need to exhibit convictional courage in the face of opposition. And so Paul gives us this New Year's resolution worth keeping. Continually live your life so that it has gospel weight. What does that mean? Well, it means we have to nurture unity among each other so that we can lean on each other and stand in the hard times. That we need to defend the gospel as a priority in our lives as we move through life. And that we need to exhibit convictional courage when the opposition that will come, comes. There was an older sister one day who was sitting down and writing, and her younger brother came up and looked over her shoulder, and he saw she was writing. Number nine, be nicer to people. Number 10, eat only healthy food. Number 11, share with friends, and she keeps on writing as he's watching. Number 28, stop being so pushy. Number 29, cut down on sweets. Number 30, be less critical to others. And he says to her, New Year's resolutions? She said, yeah, it's a good time to do that. He said, I'm impressed. That's quite a list. Do you, do you think you'll be able to keep those? He said, why should I? These are for you. <laughs> See, you could look at what Paul has written, because in a sense, Paul has said, these are for you. But if you know Paul's life, Nurturing unity, defending the gospel, convictional courage, those were all things Paul did. He wasn't just telling us to do them. But he is telling us to do them. He's telling us to continually live our lives so that they have gospel weight. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel in 2023. Let's pray together. And so, Father, that is my prayer for myself, for my brothers and sisters that are sitting here, some from Berea and some scattered through other congregations but visiting today. For those who are watching, who may be scattered around the world, Lord, wherever we are, if we are your people, help us to live lives that show the reality, the truth, the weight of the gospel. Father, if your son does not return in 2023, may we, as we look back at the end of the year, be able to see how you have used our lives as a testimony of your grace. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.